Um, well, uh, good morning and welcome to the JAR. We're so glad that you're here with us. And if you're visiting, uh, especially today, uh, I just want to say welcome. We're glad you're here. And if we can serve you in any way, um, please let us know. Uh, yesterday was our back-to-school carnival. And uh, unfortunately, because of the weather and the ground, uh, we had to uh, postpone it. The only problem is we haven't heard yet from the Parks Department on whether or not we're going to be able to use uh, Tui Park on uh, next Saturday. So uh, we will find that out, uh, and we will email everyone and uh, try to make phone calls if we can to let you know. But it may not even happen. Um, so we're a little disappointed, but because of uh, weather and vendors that we had, uh, we just weren't able to do it yesterday. So if you have any questions, uh, you can call the church office or uh, let uh, Jennifer Wilson know, and she can help with that. You know, part of the human condition is that every single one of us are infatuated with predicting things. There's something inside every one of us that has a difficult time resisting the attempt to forecast what's going to happen tomorrow. We predict the weather. We predict uh, the stocks on Wall Street. We predict who is going to win the World Series. But if you're a Reds fan, we know the prediction has already been made. You're not going to make it, okay? Now, one of the most sophisticated predictors of knowing whether or not a person loves you when I was growing up was called the pulling of the flower petal. And some of you may know this. Some of you are going, I don't even know what you're talking about. But basically, what you would do is you would get a rose or a flower and you would just kind of start pulling them off and you would say, she loves me, she loves me not. 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 This is a, lot, this is a really difficult rose here. Uh, she loves me, she loves me not. She loves me, she loves my best friend. That's what happened to me in the sixth grade, Okay. I've never used that stupid thing again, except for an illustration. But we all want to do something to try to predict the future. We want to predict what tomorrow will hold. We want to predict what's going on in our own lives. Well, regardless of who you are, if you're a human being, you want to know about the future. Now, throughout this summer, we have been looking at a book called Daniel, and today we're kind of concluding that series. And if you're here for the first time, uh, don't worry. Uh, you don't need to know all the information before to get this. But if you want to pick up any of the CDs, you can in the back. They're free. But what we've seen in this guy named Daniel is that his story was basically one in which uh, he was living in his country with his family when another country came in and took all the people, put them into exile, and he was in slavery. And while he was in slavery, he saw some of his friends who stayed connected to God thrown into a fiery furnace. And we then saw three different kings, King Nebuchadnezzar, King Belshazzar, and King Darius, all turn on Daniel. And last week, we saw this poor guy named Daniel being thrown into a lion's den because of his faith. But at the end of the book of Daniel... What Daniel wants you and I to know, and the people he's writing to, is what about the future? What's going to happen in the future? And he gives a series of visions. Now, this type of literature that we're going to look at this morning is called apocalyptic literature. In other words, it is prophetic literature. And it uses things like images and symbols and uh, different uh, weird things to us that are difficult to understand. Now, sometimes people are convinced that they're real certain about a lot of these different readings that are apocalyptic in nature. They're literature that they think, oh, I know what this means. 
So I thought I'd just give you an opportunity uh, to try to figure out if you can interpret this this morning as we read the first eight verses, okay? So let's go ahead and look at this together. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a man, and the heart of a man was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, Get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back, it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before me and before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. Everything clear so far? You understand it, right? Not. Sounds like somebody just took LSD and they're telling what they're experiencing, right? I mean, because when you look at this scripture, it's difficult to understand. Now, I want to start this morning with what I think is the wrong approach to any scripture that is apocalyptic in nature. People often look at the beast and the images of this chapter, and they use them like a guessing game to see if they can match up those different things to a real-world event that's happening right now, to some current organization, to some nation, to some leader, so that they can predict the end of time when it comes. This is the kind of approach that has been going on for centuries. At various points in history, people have tried to guess what the ten horns were. One prediction was it was the ten kings of the Greek Empire. And that's what they thought. Another time, they thought it was set up for Napoleon and his ten kings that he, or his ten leaders that he set underneath him. I've heard that it's been referred to, those ten horns refer to NATO, or maybe it refers to the United Nations. The problem with this approach is that if you go around looking for any political organization or country or person with ten members, eventually you can decide, whoa, those are the ten horns. For example, most of us here live in Muncie. And do you know how many members are on the Street Repair Commission? Ten. Actually, I don't know, but... uh, You see the problem that could happen? And you see, folks, certain people have tried for centuries to match up the beast and the horn and which country it goes to and which leader. And every time that they get it wrong, and at least up until this moment, they've got it wrong every single time, but every time that they get it wrong, the world goes on, but the gospel becomes just a little bit less credible to the watching world. Now, you need to know that I want to be very clear on this. That when it comes to this type of writing, this type of literature, there are Christians on all different extremes who are good-hearted people, but they look at this passage in Daniel in very different ways. But this is what I think. Every single time you use speculation 
or a guessing game to tack on to these scriptures. It's just the wrong approach. I think with this type of literature, you always have to start with the context. And when I say the context, what I mean is the background or the environment or the atmosphere of what's going on in Daniel's day as he's writing this. You always have to start, in my opinion, by asking, what is the writer of this text telling to his readers? I mean, Daniel's writing to a group of people who have been exiled. They have been placed into slavery. And in the very first verse, we learn that King Belshazzar is in the first year of his reign after his father, King Nebuchadnezzar, had died. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar was a god who was a, uh, he thought he was a god, but he was a king who turned himself away from God. But eventually, he turned back around. But Belshazzar, on the other hand, actually was evil and wicked and walked away from God, which we've learned before. And God's chosen people, the people of Israel, are in a long time of suffering. And they're going to be discouraged. And these people are going to be tempted to walk away from God. And the first point of this chapter, of these images that God gives to Daniel, is this. God is saying through Daniel, through this writing, the first point is this. Expect serious problems. You can just expect serious problems. I believe that these images that were given to Daniel in this vision are intended by God not for us to take some insider information and then go to a particular political organization or country or uh, nation and say, oh, that's, that's who it is. But I think what it really is looking at is that Daniel's generation and every single generation after that was going to suffer in different ways from political power, human power, that goes against God's will. I mean, you just think about it. Throughout history, whenever political power, world power, has gone against God's will, people suffer, people hurt. Let me give you a couple examples of this. First of all, in verse 5. It says this, And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. Now that's a weird picture, isn't it? Here's a bear, okay? And between his teeth are three ribs. I mean, what does this mean? Does the bear need to floss? Does the bear have bad dental kind of issues and, you know, something needs to happen? Well, what this is referring to is not that, but violence and aggression. Here, the image is of this ravenous bear. I mean, violence breeds more violence. Hate breeds more hate. Killing brings more killing. I mean, you just look over the newspaper over the past hundred years and you can see it. Look at the Holocaust with Jews. Look at the genocide that we saw in Rwanda. Look at 9-11. Look at the killing that's been happening in Palestine. Look at the killing that's happened in Afghanistan just this week on people just trying to place a vote. And they're killed. But what I want to ask you this morning, in a more sobering kind of way, in a more subtle way, what about your own heart? What happens to your heart when you hold in hostility and resentment towards other people? Evil just works that way. You allow it to control a little bit of yourself, And it breeds, and it's never satisfied. Well, the next beast has wings. It's, and that's kind of a picture of swiftness. That evil can be swift. It can be conniving. It can get us to do things that we wouldn't normally do. The fourth beast has ten horns. And this is an image of power. 
And then in verse 8, it talks about a little horn that came up and it says, The horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. Now this idea of pride and boasting has been going on throughout the book of Daniel. We've seen it in three different kings. The king Nebuchadnezzar, king Belshazzar, king Darius. But the issue of pride and the issue of boasting is not something that just ended in Daniel's day, but it still affects our day today. In fact, it affects the people around you. It affects the person sitting in your seat. There's a story that came up from the Gulf War. It's one of my favorites and uh, deals with this issue of pride. And here's the story. There was a new commanding officer, a CO, who was transferred to a new army base. And he goes to his office on the very first day of work. A private comes into his office and he wants to show that he really knows what he's doing. And he wanted to look impressive. And so when the private walks in, he picks up the phone and he goes, Absolutely, General. General Schwarzkopf, you can count on me. I'll take care of it. And he bangs the phone down and he says, Yes, private, what can I do for you? And the private looked and said, I'm here to install your phone. You see, the Bible says this, Too much pride, folks, will destroy you. Too much pride will destroy. Too much pride will make you fall. We saw that vividly happen to two of the kings that we talk about. King Nebuchadnezzar, King Belshazzar. And that's what's happening with this concept of a little horn with a boastful mouth. Now here's what's clear about this first section of Scripture that we've looked at in the first eight verses. There are forces in this world that are hostile to God. They're quite powerful and they're very real. And I just want to let you know that if you choose to follow the one true God, if you choose to follow Jesus Christ and His teachings, suffering and opposition and danger and persecution will come your way. Now, the reality is, for everyone in this room and everyone who lives in the United States, Christianity is pretty comfortable if you want to become a Christian. I mean, we can express what we want, where we want, how we want. We can worship uh, together, and there is no uh, opposition uh, towards us. But there are Christians throughout the world who don't have these liberties. They are not given the right to worship freely their one God. And daily, they're being persecuted. Daily, wage is warred on their faith. Our war is being waged on their faith. And the name of this group is called the Persecuted Church. I'd just like to share you a story about one person who's gone through this. In Mark Danner's book, The Massacre at El Muzate, he tells the story of a young El Salvadorian little girl who was persecuted for her Christian faith. He was a person who was reporting on what was going on. This is what it says. He writes, There was one girl in particular the soldiers talked about that evening. A girl on La Cruz whom they had raped many times during the course of that afternoon. And through it all, while the other woman of El Mazote had screamed and cried, this little girl had sung hymns to her God. And she had kept right on singing too, even after they had done what they had to do and shot her in the chest. She had lain there in La Cruz with blood flowing from her chest and she just kept on singing to God, a bit weaker than before, but still singing. And the soldiers, stupefied, had watched and pointed. 
Then they had kind of grown tired of this game of her singing praises to God while they made fun of her, and they shot her again. And she still sang. And their wonder began to turn to fear. Until finally, they had unsheathed their machetes and hacked through her neck. And at last, the singing stopped. Folks, that really happened. That was a person who was a lover of Jesus Christ. And because of her love for God... She experienced a war being waged upon her that most of us in this room have never experienced nor ever will. And hundreds and thousands and millions of people throughout the history of this world have been persecuted and killed for the name of Christ. And people in this world right now, folks are experiencing that type of war. And if you want to learn more about this, you can go on a website that is one that has opened my eyes to the plight of the rest of the world called The Voice of the Martyrs. It's persecution.com. You can look it up yourself. And you can learn at ways that you can pray for people who are, on, who are in other places of the world following Christ. And most of the watching world doesn't even know some of the atrocities that are happening to them. You can see stories of people who are dying for the faith because of their love for God. You see, today, the fact is, none of us, when we leave from this place, will be thrown in jail because we chose to meet and assemble as Christians. We won't be tortured for our faith. Most of us are not living in desperate poverty in which we really don't know if we're going to even eat today. But throughout this world, those things are happening to Christians everywhere. War is being waged upon them because of their faith. Today, none of us in this room are going to experience that type of persecution. And yet, because of God's grace and His love... He's not saying what you're going through, do not take light of. Just remember what is happening in the rest of the world. But some of you are experiencing your own struggles, your own problems, your own persecution. Some of you are facing serious health problems right now, and maybe nobody even knows. Some of you are facing unemployment. It just amazes me if we went through the rows one out of every ten of us is without a job, and maybe it's even higher. We're facing a destruction of a relationship, maybe a marriage, maybe a, a child, something. And all of us have something that we can relate to about what it means sometimes to suffer in this world and for our faith. And what happens, though, when we're so comfortable, when something happens to our lives that causes us to, to suffer, we kind of get shaken. And it's very easy for us to walk away from the faith than it is to walk into the hands of the Savior who knows you best and loves you most. And I, I just can't teach on this text if I don't tell you that there is a war being waged upon your soul. And anyone who chooses to follow Jesus Christ will experience that. It's not my, uh, primarily a physical suffering, although sometimes it happens, but it is a spiritual world war, and it's primarily to pry men and women away from God. To have them be their own gods, to do their own thing, to walk away. And I believe it went on in Daniel's day, and I think it happens in our day today, and it goes on in the human hearts of you and myself and everyone else. And that's why I think the first point we really have to take is expect serious problems. Don't be surprised when trouble comes your way. But at the same time, don't give up. Don't give up, and don't lose hope. 
So let's look at the second part that may give us a little bit more encouragement as we go through. I know that first half was kind of heavy. And what this describes is the heavenly reality. Using the same apocalyptic symbol literature. In verse 9 we read this. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Anybody know who the Ancient of Days is? It's God. Okay? Daniel sees God, the Ancient of Days, on his throne. Then he describes it by saying this. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. So if you got gray hair today, you're in good company. You know? His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were open. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. Again, what happens is, this is imagery that Daniel writes and he receives and he's talking about what God is like. And did you know that throughout history, throughout humankind, people have been trying to figure out what is God like? Who is God? What does He do? Who is He really? Well, this week... I read a homework assignment by an eight-year-old named Danny Dutton from California. And his assignment was to explain God. And here's his shot at it. I thought I'd read it. This is what Danny writes. One of God's main jobs is making people. He makes them to replace the ones that die so there will be enough people to take care of the things on earth. He doesn't make grown-ups, just babies. I think because they're smaller and easier to make. That way, he doesn't have to take up his valuable time teaching them to talk and walk. He can just kind of leave that to the mothers and fathers. God's second most important job is listening to prayers. An awful lot of this goes on, since people like preachers and things pray at other times besides at church. Or at bedtime. God doesn't have time to listen to the radio or the TV because of this. Because He hears everything, there must be a terrible lot of noise in His ears. Unless He has thoughts of some way to turn it off. God sees everything and hears everyone and is everywhere. Which keeps Him pretty busy. So you shouldn't go wasting His time by going over your mom and dad's head asking for something that they said you couldn't have. Jesus is God's Son. He used to do all the hard work like walking on water and performing miracles and trying to teach people who didn't want to learn about God. They finally got tired of Him preaching to them and they crucified Him. But He was good and kind like His Father and He told His Father they didn't know what they were doing and to forgive them. And God said, okay. His dad, God, approached everything he had done and all of his hard work on earth, so he told him he didn't have to go out on the road anymore. I love that line. So I told him he didn't have to go out on the road anymore. So he could just stay in heaven. So he did. And now he helps his dad out by listening to prayers and seeing things which are important for God to take care of and which ones he can take care of himself without having to bother God. Like a secretary, only more important. A little bit lost on the Trinity there, but, you know, it is an eight-year-old. He goes on to say this, You can pray anytime you want, and they're sure to help you because they've got it all worked out so that one of them is on duty all the time. 
You should always go to church on Sunday because it makes God happy. And if there's anybody you want to make happy, it's God. Don't skip church or do something you think will be more fun, like going to the beach. He's from California. This is wrong, and besides, the sun doesn't come out at the beach until noon anyway. If you don't believe in God, besides being an atheist, you'll be very lonely. Because your parents can't go everywhere with you like camp, but God can. It's good to know He's around when you're scared in the dark, or you can't swim, and you get thrown into the deep water by the big kids. But you shouldn't just always think of God and what He can do for you. I figure God put me here, and He can take me back anytime He pleases. And that's why I believe in God. Pretty good for an eight-year-old, huh? Pretty good. Well, Daniel uses images and symbols to express what God is like. And this leads us to our second point, and it's this. God will set things right. God will set things right. In verse 9, we read this. Thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Now, what's that mean? What does that mean, that the Ancient of Days took his seat? Was God kind of concerned about the seating arrangement in heaven, and so, you know, he didn't know if they were going to play musical chairs or whatever to figure out who was going to sit there? No. What's happening here is Daniel is saying this, God is going to set things right. I mean, the day is going to come, folks, when justice will prevail. The Ancient of Days is going to take His seat. His one and only throne will be occupied, and God, and God alone, is going to set things right. So in this world in which injustice and suffering and pain and struggle and all those things happen, don't give up because there is somebody who is on the throne. There is a throne that he will sit on one day. Now Daniel, he knew all about injustice. He had been captured and taken into slavery into a foreign country in exile. He had seen his friends thrown into a fiery furnace. He himself had been thrown into the lion's den. He had suffered from people of power. And he must have wondered, you know, this whole time, we don't even know if he ever got married. Scripture doesn't tell us. But his whole life has been away from everything that he knew was right and good. He was taken away from. And he must have wondered, would justice ever be served? And God says, the day is coming. There is a throne. Now, there are tons of injustices in our world. In fact, I was just talking to someone this week in my office. She had come in, and uh, she had been fired from her job. And after she had been fired, she thought her health care had a COBRA policy that went into where the, the health care she could pick up. And she... Uh, Assume that would happen. The employer never told her that they had pulled the insurance and were not going to do anything whatsoever. And in the midst of this, one of her uh, children uh, went into the hospital, and now she has thousands of dollars worth of medical bills, and she knows that if she gets an attorney and she tries to do all that, the balance of what the cost is just won't happen. And I have a feeling that that isn't a, sol a solo story, but an injustice was done. And there are injustices all the time. But the day is coming, folks, in which every single wrong that has been done will be made right. And the Ancient of Days will take his seat on the throne, and justice will prevail. And this is what the Bible says. That since we know that, since we know that God one day will make all things right, the Bible tells us we should not seek justice for ourselves. It says this, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, 
It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. In other words, folks, justice is coming. I know that in a crowd this size, that some of you have been treated very unfairly. Maybe it's from your boss. Maybe it's from a co-worker. Maybe it's from somebody you had a business dealing with. Maybe you uh, gave money to a friend and they never paid you back. Maybe it's a spouse or an ex-spouse who has hurt you severely. Maybe it's a relative or a friend who has wounded you and they got away with it and it just eats you up inside for the fact that that person got away with it. And you've been carrying a grudge against them, hoping for bad things to happen. You kind of have dreams at night that something bad would happen to them. It's chewing up your spirit. You know who that person is or what that issue is. You know their picture right now. And all I want to tell you is, one day, that person will face God's justice. God says... I'm going to set things right. All the horrible, heinous things that happen in life, I will set those things right. And so God says, since that's going to happen, and He promises that it will, He says, do not take justice into your own hands. Some of you have been hurt so bad that it's almost like a big bag of grudges that you've been carrying on your back And there's resentment there. And God just wants to tell you, let it go. Forgive whoever that person is. It doesn't mean you have to trust them again. It doesn't mean you have to have them in your home. It doesn't mean you have to have a big party of forgiveness for them. But in your heart, in the places where resentment is at, you forgive them. Because God says, you know what? My justice will prevail. And as far as it depends upon you, be at peace with everyone that you know. Now the next image that we see is in verse 10, and it says this, His, the Ancient of Days, God, God's throne was flaming with fire, and its wills were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out before Him. Now fire is a powerful force. Talked to a couple people this week who have lost their entire possessions at some point in their life because of fire. And this image right here is an image of God's power. Some of you might remember there's a story of Moses. He goes up for the Ten Commandments. He looks, and what does he see on fire beside him? A burning bush. It's a flame of fire. It's God's power. His presence right there. And this morning, I just want to ask you a question, and it's this. Where in your life do you need power? You might need power to forgive whoever that person is, but where in your life do you need power at? Because the Bible says this, for our God is a consuming fire. God is awesome. He's powerful. He'll give you any amount of power that you need in your life to fulfill the things in life. Then in verse 11, it says this, Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words that the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. Now the image in verse 7, if you remember, was of this beast that had iron teeth and ten horns all around his head. It seemed scary and frightening. Now if Spielberg got a hold of this, you would see this on the movie of this thing with ten horns and a beast and just, ah! And you're thinking, man, God is going to be in trouble because this thing is... Just too powerful. But what does the Scripture say? Look at it again. It says, I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed. It's kind of like this. God walks by, you're destroyed. Just a snap of the fingers and God can do whatever God wants, whenever God wants, because God is that. God is not us. He is not set by any of our boundaries. He can choose to do whatever He wants. 
God is so powerful that he snaps his finger. Now, there is a struggle that each of us battle in this thing called life. There's spiritual struggle that goes on. All of us have been hurt. We're all broken. We're all messed up, screwed up, flubbed up people. But the reality is this. God loves His people so much that He gives us free will, free choice to do what He wants because He would rather us take the desire to want Him rather than to just tell us what to do. The Bible says this, The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I just want you to know, we live in a world, folks, in which God is patient. He's extremely patient. We are living in a fallen world, but God's patience is showing right now. But I want you to know, don't be fooled. Because when God says that things are made to be set right, when that moment comes, when He goes to His throne, it will be just like that. Judgment will take place. Satan, who tempts us and makes us to think evil thoughts and do evil things, and sometimes we choose to do it on our own, in the moment that he wants to, God will end Satan's reign. And God will say the world is over, the universe is over. When God says it's over, it's over. And one day it will come. And then in Daniel's vision, in verse 13, it says this, In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Anybody know who the son of man is? Jesus Christ. Jesus, throughout the Gospel accounts, He referred to Himself as the Son of Man. He goes right back to Daniel's prophecy hundreds of years before, and He says, I'm the Son of Man. He also called Himself the Son of God. He said, I'm the Son of God, I'm the Son of Man. In other words, I'm fully God. And I'm fully human to understand what you go through. There is no other God, no other religion that fully understands what you go through like Jesus Christ because He was both. Fully God, fully man. Verse 13 then continues. He, the Son of Man, Jesus, approached the Ancient of Days and was led into His presence. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, men of every language worshipped Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Daniel ends the book of Daniel by giving us this concept in chapter 7 that every single person one day will worship the Son of God, the Son of Man. And the way we're going to end our celebration today, because I couldn't think of any other way to do it any better, is the band is going to come up and we are going to sing a celebration to the Son of Man who one day every single person in the world will bow down to. And when you're singing to this God of yours, I want you to sing with the passion of a Colts football game. Because I went to the preseason game on Thursday against the Eagles. Preseason! And people are going, Woo! You know what Peyton Manning will do for you? For eternity? Nothing. They had this big old trophy. A friend of mine and I were there. They had this big old trophy. And here's Peyton, you know, and everybody's Woo! I'm thinking, I love football. I'm going to four Colts games this year. Some people love football even more than I do. But Peyton Manning and football ain't going to do anything. But right now, you have a chance to worship the one true God who can do everything for your life. It's the only person in the world who can help you once your last breath is taken. Jesus Christ is your one and only hope. I'm just going to tell you that. I don't apologize for it. It's your only hope in the world. And maybe you're here this morning and you're discouraged. 
Maybe you're confused. Maybe you're hurting. Maybe you feel inadequate. Maybe you're feeling guilty about something. Whatever that is. Jesus knows. And maybe you're here today and um, you're on top of the world. Things have been going well in your life. You feel good. You're like, hey, I don't... You know what? It really doesn't matter what you're feeling right now. It matters with who's going to be the God of your life. And you can choose yourself, you can choose another God, or you can choose Jesus Christ. But the only scripture that we know of in which somebody talked about a Son of Man coming in glory and being worshipped and honored for all of eternity is Jesus Christ. And I just want you to know that one day, folks, justice will come. Whatever the suffering is, whatever the hurting is, whatever you're going through your life, justice will prevail. And the God of the Ancient of Days will stand on the throne. And you and I will bow before Him in honor and praise and glory. And it won't just be one person, folks. Did you see what the Scripture said? It said 10,000 upon 10,000. I mean, billions of people all around the world going to heaven at once and worshiping and praising the one true God. I don't preach very much, but I'll tell you what. I'll go to my grave believing that that day is going to happen. And the moment that you're going to experience right now, this has nothing to do with Isaac and the band and, oh man, you know, cool. Woo! This is about you giving your passionate worship to the one because one day we'll all do it in heaven. And why don't we start now? So let's stand and sing.